Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, the beginning of the year and for some of us there's so much that's new. Uh, new schools, new jobs, uh, new babies, new griefs. Uh, but we pray in a world where we know so much change that you would help us now to give heed to your unchanging and eternal word, that we would come to know you, the true and living God, through knowing your son Jesus. And we pray that you would uh, help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and in your mercy help us to receive this word, to pay attention to it and to know it is you, our God, speaking to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the advantages I've had in life, and I've had uh, a lot, is having an older brother. Uh, not a perfect brother, uh, but a very accomplished brother and one who was happy to acknowledge me as his brother. And so, uh, you know, when I was young, he let me tag along and so I got included in the games. Uh, when I got to school, I benefited from his good reputation and his thoughtful friends who looked out for me. Uh, when I later was lecturing, he was happy to share his knowledge about academic standards and organisation, about which he knew a lot. And I know that for family's sake, if I ever needed, he'd help. Having an accomplished and competent brother is a great help and security. Now, even if you haven't had a brother, or even if your relationship with the brother you have has been less than it should, it's not hard, is it, for any of us to imagine how good it would be to have a brother we could rely on, who was present and able to help, who was committed to us as family, who'd always, in a sense, own and acknowledge us as his brother. And so this morning, if you trust, if you're someone who trusts and follows Jesus, do you know that you have a glorious, exalted brother in Jesus? A brother who is not ashamed to call you his brother. And that's, in a sense, our goal in looking at this section of Hebrews 2. That if you're a believer, you would be convinced that you have a brother. And you would know something of the wonder and comfort of having Jesus as your brother because you actually know something of his greatness and his commitment to his family. And if you're not yet a brother, well, think, if you're not yet a believer, think as you hear about Jesus, what would it be worth to have Jesus, to know Jesus as someone who would call you his brother? Now, having dealt at length uh, with Jesus' superiority to the angels in chapter 1 to show the superiority of the words spoken by God in his son, the gospel word, to that of the revelation given by angels, the law, the author now moves on to dispel any lingering doubts his audience may have had about Jesus' superiority to angels. For, verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now his audience, a Jewish Christians from a, believers in Jesus from a Jewish background, may have had lingering doubts about Jesus' superiority to the angels because they knew the book of Daniel spoke of angels as exercising rule 
influence over the history of nations as possessing power now in the present. And they also knew that angels didn't die. And Jesus' death, the fact of Jesus' death, was a particular problem for the author's claims about Jesus' greatness. Because the commentators tell us that in the ancient world, people believed that how a person died revealed his or her character. And so a shameful death, and a crucifixion is the most shameful of deaths, confirmed that the person was base and dishonourable. Shameful. Angels, of course, knew nothing of that death or shame. And so his audience would think, surely they are superior, the key players in God's plan for the world. So the author starts by correcting their thinking about the exalted place of angels from Scripture, from Psalm 8. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author says, look at what God says. Creation's not been entrusted to the angels, but to man, to humanity. The psalmist is reflecting on Genesis 1, where God has made man, Adam, male and female in his image and called them to rule over creation. So verse 26, let them have dominion, dominion over the flesh of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing. This is in a sense something of the wonder of God's revelation about our nature. Yes, humanity is a little lower than the angels, without their power or greatness, lacking their constancy, and yet these frail creatures, us humans, are given the rule of creation. It was always humanity's place to be given rule over all things, and by that he means all created things, as he makes clear in uh, in verse 8, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Always humanity's place to be given the rule over all things. But of course there's a problem that he alludes to. We don't see that. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But before we think about that problem and God's response to it, about how God will fulfil his intention, his creation intention, let's just pause for a minute and remember the dignity given to humanity. You see, we live in a world where human life can be pretty cheap, where, well, in our society, human lives can be disposed of before birth with no particular external consequences. Grief, yes, but no external consequences. In other societies, only some lives matter, those in our group, whether it's the pro-Syrian government group or the right ethnic group or the right caste or even the right gender. Oh, and it can be taught now that human life is just an accident with no real role, no intrinsic dignity. But the psalmist says, what is man? That's mankind, humanity, every human, and wonders that God actually thinks and cares about humans gives them a role in creation. 
that from creation every human has been made in the image of God, made for a responsible stewarding of the creation entrusted to us. And so as we go through, pause, is that the way you think of others, all others, made in God's image? Is it the way you think of yourself, image of God, a little lower than the angels, entrusted with the rule and care of creation? But there is, as I've said, a problem with this meditation on what God intended for humanity in his creating of them. Not all things are in subjection to humanity. In fact, you could say that our interaction with the created world is often demonstrably characterised by chaos and confusion and that those to whom rule has been entrusted are often subjected to humiliation and indignity, are debased. Because of Adam's sin, a sin in which we all share, because of his disobedience and our disobedience to the word of God, humanity, while still in God's image, has lost its position. The rulers become enslaved to lies and death. And the creation, man ruled, now never responds wholeheartedly to that rule but returns in scripture's words, thorns and thistles, frustration and difficulty. But Psalm 8 is the word of the living God and the author knows that this word won't fail. What was a reflection on the place of humanity in creation actually becomes a prophecy about one man. And you see that in the text. Although man in verse 6, is a collective noun for mankind, for humanity, there is after that the persistent use of the singular him. There is one spoken of, an individual, a him who is made for a little while lower than the angels and who is crowned with glory and honour. One in whom what is said of humanity, of mankind, of Adam, will find its fulfilment. And so human degradation and humiliation, human failure to realise what was intended, failure to rule over all things, is not now all that we can see. <coughs> oh, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see Jesus. In the preaching of the gospel, we see this psalm finds fulfilment in Jesus, that he is truly the one this psalm speaks of. Jesus is the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, verse 9. The author here assumes what's called Jesus' incarnation, that Jesus is the eternal son become flesh. You see, We've already been told in chapter 1 that the Son is the one through whom and for all thing, whom all things are created, that he is pre-existent. Oh, and we've told that he is always the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. God, in a sense, from God, in John's words, that the Son is the eternal word who is with God and is God. And now the author describes the Son's coming amongst humanity. He's humbling himself to take on human flesh. That for a little while, one whom the angels worship 
has been made lower than the angels. The author refers to this incarnation of the Son a couple of times in this chapter. A couple of times. Uh, because it's actually a big idea in this chapter. He wants to insist that the Son became fully a man. That everything we are, he became. Oh, and he wants to insist that he did that without ceasing to be the eternal Son. We've already seen that he is always the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The Son does not become this. There never was a time when he was not this. And the Son does not cease to be this when he takes on our nature, shares in our flesh and blood, our frail and finite embodiment. The Son, born of Mary, became like us in every respect, while still being the eternal Son, became like us in every respect, except, as we read in chapter 4, without sin. Jesus, the incarnate Son, is the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And Jesus is the one exalted over all, crowned in the words of Psalm 8, with glory and honour the one who will rule over all things because, says the author, of the suffering of death. As the author has already said in chapter 1, he, Jesus, the one who is now in our body, taken on our flesh, the man, he is the one to whom God has said, you are my son, to whom he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus, the eternal son, became flesh and is, says the author, the one the psalm is speaking of, the man in whom what has been promised of mankind is fulfilled, the one in whom God's creation purpose for humanity is fulfilled. Where Adam failed because of his disobedience, Jesus, because of his faithful obedience to death, triumphed and he will have dominion over all. Just as the dominion in the next line of Psalm 8, go back. Yes, just as the dominion in the next line in, in, is in the next line in Psalm 8, so that dominion will be the next thing in God's plan for creation. The day will come when every knee will bow to Jesus, when he will reign in the new heaven and earth, the world to come, and he will reign as one who is now man the incarnate son. Now let me say there is a lot to think about in Psalm 8. Uh, but the author doesn't, in a sense, pause to think about it because he wants us, as we'll see, to focus on Jesus' death, making the point that it is not a cause of shame but of glory. But let's us just pause for a minute. What is your understanding of what it is to be truly human? What a genuine human life, a life that fulfills its purpose looks like? Is a genuine human life seen in the possession of the power to get your own way, in having wealth to realise all your own wishes, a life full of experiences of pleasure and excitement? Is it being able to realise your own dreams and ambitions, being free from the constraints and demands of others? Or is it freedom to live well and wholly free from pain, a life of pleasure? Jesus being the fulfilment of Psalm 8 is the revelation of what it is to be 
the true human. His is the genuine human life as God created it to be, to fulfil God's purposes. That takes some thinking about because Jesus' life, let's face it, is so different from the confused visions of the good life, of what it is to be human in our society. You see, looking at Jesus, we see genuine human life is actually known in dependence on God, not rebellion against God, in humility, not pride in achievement or birth or possession, in gentleness and kindness and a commitment to truth, not flattering, self-concern, self-deception, that the genuine human life is not a life spent pursuing pleasure or experience or power, but spent in love of others. Oh yes, it's a life that knows thankfulness and joy, but it's a life characterised by love of God and love of neighbour. And notice, the expression of what it is to be truly human isn't gendered. <laughs> this is the life for all humans. How that life of loving God and neighbour is expressed in our own lives, oh yeah, it'll vary in our circumstances and gender will be a large feature of our circumstances. But there is a common humanity which should be pursued by all and recognised and encouraged in all. The life of being like Jesus. But the author doesn't pause here. He wants to move on to that death which is the pathway to glory, to the dominion that will embrace all things, including the angels. For God had a purpose in that death. He died so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now when we think of taste, we think of sample, don't we? You know, having a bit of something, putting it back, having a bit of something else, right? But that's not what the author means. Taste here means experience. That Jesus died so that by the grace of God he might experience death for everyone. And notice, this death is for or on behalf of all. There is a kind of universality in the death of Jesus. Oh, all here doesn't mean that Jesus' death is effective for each and every person. Our author is not a universalist in the sense that Jesus' death saves all, whether they believe or not. The next few verses will show that very clearly. Jesus has his brothers, his children, those who are sanctified by faith in him. The message of the whole book of Hebrews is actually about persevering in faith in Jesus, so you're saved. Jesus experiences death for all, not all without exception, but all without distinction. You see, the death he experiences is the death of all in the sense that it is a genuinely human death, the death each one of us must die. And that means that his death, in a sense, can include any, be effective for any who is a human, no matter what their race or language or background. And so saying Jesus tasted death for all is actually an invitation for each and any of us to see in the death of Jesus our freedom from death if we will trust him because he tasted death for us. And the author's very bold. He says, insists that this 
death that was so shameful is God's will. More, that it was right and proper that God makes Jesus the Saviour through this shameful death on the cross. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God has a goal. It's always been to have a people of his own fit to live in his presence. Now his people here are called sons. And that was because in that culture, sons are the permanent members of the household and sons can share in the glory and reign of the son, Jesus. And so he's addressing a mixed congregation. He is calling everyone, men and women, who believe in Jesus, he's calling them sons to assure them that they are the people who remain in the household forever. And the destination of sons is glory. That is, living in the Father's presence, being able to experience his love and might. Glory is it's seeing God's face in the new heaven and earth, never knowing death or grief, never being blemished by sin again, secure in God's presence. That is God's goal for his people. But how when all humanity has been marred and defiled by their sin, their rebellion against or ignoring of God, how can God achieve that goal? Well, the author tells us it's through a man. A man equipped for this task by the suffering of death, by making, he says, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author's telling us here of Jesus' role and how Jesus has been equipped for that role. And so he says Jesus is the founder or pioneer of salvation. Salvation here is wholeness and peace, it's security and life in God's presence. And he says Jesus is the founder, or another way of thinking about that word is the trailblazer. Jesus sets out the path to salvation by going on ahead so that others can, uh, can come after him to this destination. Jesus is the founder and completer of salvation, the one who establishes salvation as something that others can come and share in. And Jesus is equipped, he says, to be the founder of salvation by the suffering mentioned in verse 9, the suffering of death. Jesus, he said, is made perfect through suffering. Now, perfect or perfection is actually a key idea in Hebrews and it'll be be used again in reference to Jesus and believers later in the book. Uh, now, he's not talking here, though, about moral perfection. Jesus is, as we've seen in chapter 415, without sin. He is unblemished and pure. Perfection here is not talking about moral attainment. Now, being made perfect is talking about being equipped for a task, a calling. It says that Jesus is fitted, made adequate and complete for his role of being the founder of salvation by his death. And not just by the brute fact of his death, but by the suffering of his death. And we'll go into that later. But suffering is actually measured by who Jesus is and the nature of his relationship with the Father. Now, how this 
death fits him for that role, we'll see in chapter 2 next week when we start to think about verses 14 to 18 and Jesus' defeat of the devil through death, and then again in chapter 7 to 10, how Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. But what the author wants to insist on here is that this perfecting by suffering was fitting. It was fitting. He's saying that this death for all was the right and proper way for God. God, the creator, the sovereign, the beginning and end of all things, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, the one who can do all things. He's saying this death is the right and proper way for God to achieve his purpose of bringing many sons to glory. And so he's saying to the audience that saw this death as dreadfully shameful, He's saying this death was not plan B. It's not an accident, not an adaptation to circumstances, not an embarrassment. It was the right and proper way, the fitting way, the best way. And so Jesus' death is not an argument against Jesus' greatness, but a demonstration of his greatness, of his perfect suitability to save God's people, to be the one, the only one, to whom dominion over all is given and whom any human can find there, in a sense, creation, destiny. And that death, he says, verse 11, requires a real incarnation that establishes a real solidarity with those being saved, which creates a new family that includes both Jesus and those whom he saves, those whom he bel who belong to him. For it says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You see, there is a distinction between Jesus and those saved by him. The author, again introducing here a big idea of Hebrews, says Jesus is the one who sanctifies and believers, those saved by him, are those who are sanctified by him. Now, to sanctify is to cleanse from all impurity and fault in God's sight. It's to make holy, it's to be made fit for the presence of the holy God. And so to be sanctified is just that, to have been made holy, fitted to live with God. And to be sanctified is the main way the book of Hebrews speaks of how what it means for the individual believer to be saved. In Hebrews, it's inclusive of all Christ does for us, forgiving us, accepting us, giving us access to God, setting believers apart for the service of God. That all comes under being sanctified. And being sanctified in Hebrews is the climax of Jesus' sacrificial death, as we'll see in chapters 9 and 10. We've been sanctified, believers, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Oh, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. But the point here, the point here is what is held in common between the one who sanctifies and those being sanctified. The ESV says they all have one origin. In Greek it's literally they are all of one. It's saying Jesus has the same human nature which every one of us has without sin. He's saying the Son really has become one of us in his birth of the virgin and that he must be one with us to die that human death. He must be one with us to save by his death and that 
has this wonderful consequence. Because he shares our nature, our flesh and blood, and because he has sanctified us, he is not ashamed to call those he saves, those he sanctifies, brothers. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now think for a moment of the wonder of that. I mean, let's face it, sometimes our brothers are embarrassed, ashamed of, of the little brother who tags along and who just can't keep up. You know, the little brother who insists on playing and then drops the footy, who says they've got to come and then whinges about, well, whinges because everyone else is going too fast. The, the little brother who you let, in a sense, play with your stuff and then sits on your model Lancaster bomber that took you hours to... I was a good little brother, right, that took you hours to build. Right? We get embarrassed with just a few years of difference in ability, don't we, <laughs> between us and our little brothers. Sometimes, you know, when a family member lifts himself above the squalid circumstances of their birth family and rises to fame and prominence, they don't even want to know their family. But not Jesus. He says he is not ashamed to call believers brothers. Think of that. Think of the gap between Jesus and ourselves. He upholds the universe with the word of his power and we as King Canute has famously shown us can't even turn back the tide. The angels worship him and we can't even imagine the greatness of an angel. He endures forever and we're like the grass of the field here today, gone tomorrow. It's actually hard to think of a suitable comparison that will bring home to us the vastness of the difference between Jesus' power, his wisdom, his riches, his life, and our weakness and folly, poverty and mortality. And that's not the only differences, are they? I mean, Jesus is holy, pure, good, loving, truthful, and even when we are his, we still battle with pettiness and selfishness, dishonesty, defiling, defiling lust, covetousness, anger. In fact, we know that there's much in ourselves of which we would be ashamed. Yet he says he is not ashamed of us to call us brother, when sometimes even our own earthly family is ashamed to know us. Yet that's the truth. If we're believers, sanctified by faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if our circumstances are humble. It doesn't matter if our ability is small and everyone else will overlook us. It actually doesn't matter if our past is full of unkind and selfish actions that we are desperate to keep hidden from others. Jesus says, if we are believers, he is not ashamed to call us brothers to own us as members of his family, those who can rely on his commitment to us, be assured of his welcome into the family home, who will know his help. It's a wonderful claim, isn't it? And extraordinary that the one crowned with glory and honour would not be ashamed to own each believer as his brother. So extraordinary that the author 
proves it from God's word. He quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 as the scripture has been authored by God. He quotes these as what Jesus himself has said. And both show again that God never intended Jesus to be alone, that what Jesus did, the victory he achieved, the salvation he pioneered, was never meant to be for him alone. And so the first quote from Psalm 22, the vindicated Messiah, the one who had suffered abandonment, now in being vindicated by God, declares God's people to be his brothers. The second quote's from Isaiah 8, 17 to 18. Again, Isaiah 8 is seen as being spoken by Jesus himself. In this case, Isaiah is a type of Jesus in putting his hope wholly in God in the face of the unbelief of Israel and the hostility of the nations. And just as Isaiah put his trust in him, and just as Isaiah brought with him his family and his trust in God and his testimony to the truth of God, so Jesus, trusting God and going to the cross trusting God, will have his family, his children, who like him, put their faith in God by putting their faith in God's Son. God always intended that Jesus' work would not be for himself alone, but that he would bring many sons to glory, that Jesus would have a family of those saved by him, those given to him by the Father, his children, his brothers, whose human nature he shares and continues to share, of whom he proclaims he is not ashamed. And because the Son remains one of us, he is now always Jesus, the God-man. This is a forever family. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers forever, not ashamed to have us in his home. You know, this section of Hebrews 2 is a very rich passage, showing us Jesus as the true man, the one in whom God's purpose for humanity from creation is realised, the one who has a dominion over everything without exception. And many ideas are introduced by the author that he's going to return to as Hebrew goes on. Hebrews goes on. You know, Jesus, the founder of our faith, Jesus, the one perfected through the suffering, Jesus, the suffering of death, Jesus, the one who sanctifies. But if you're a believer, take just this one thing away if you are only going to take one thing. Remember this, Jesus, the one crowned with glory and honour, the Son of the Father, whom the angels worship, is not ashamed to call you brother. Hear him say that and wonder at it. Hear him say that so, you, so that you will actually nor, draw near to Jesus and not be kept away by your own shame at failing him. He calls you brother. Hear him say that, so that you'll be confident in him, confident that actually he will receive you and always be there to help you. Hear him say that, so that you will know his is an enduring commitment to you, believer, a family commitment that won't change. I hear Jesus say that he's not ashamed to call you brother so that you will be confident that 
as his family, you will share in the greatness that he's achieved. You will share in the new in his rule of the new heaven and earth. Be that confident so that you will persevere, even if it means losing all things for him now, because he is not ashamed to call you brother. Hear him say that. Oh, yes, and hear him say that so that you value your brothers and sisters, those sitting with you here, as the brothers of the great king and don't despise them or turn away from them and be embarrassed about associating with any of them. That's right, isn't it? Jesus is the one who calls people to himself. These are the people God gives him, the family God gives him. It's his choice and he might have chosen people you mightn't have chosen. The socially awkward the person with the difficult kids, the person from that different cultural or class background, the poor or the smelly. But think about it. If there was someone you really respected and admired, you'd be pleased to know their brother and you would be determined to treat them well for the sake of the one you admire. Well, Jesus is not ashamed to call the believers you're sitting amongst here today his brothers, just as he's not ashamed to call you brother. So you should be determined to treat them well for his sake. And think also this, if your brother won an Olympic gold medal or a VC or a Nobel Prize, you'd be pleased for others to know that, wouldn't you? Well, your brother, if you're a believer, has won glory and honour and rule over all by tasting death for all. Surely you want others to know that, wouldn't you? Know that about your brother, especially where they could find that he'd actually tasted death for them as well, that he died their death, especially where they'd find that they could join Jesus' forever family as well by trusting him. Where Jesus says he's not ashamed to call you brother, why would you ever be ashamed of him? For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one origin. That is why. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Trusting Jesus, if you're a believer, will you walk out from here feeling that? Not ashamed. Jesus calls you his brother. And if you are not yet a believer, well, surely you would want to be included in the family of the one who has died for you, and the one who now is crowned with glory and honour, the one who will have dominion over you and who, if you will turn and trust him, will include you in his family forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your grace. Uh, we could never deserve to be included in your family, never deserve to have Jesus call us brother. But because of the wonder of your generous kindness and love and because of the effectiveness of that 
death, through which Jesus has been perfected as our Saviour. We thank you that we can know this to be true, that Jesus calls us brother, and that as he lives forever, he will always own us as his brother, those who are welcome in his presence, those who can share his home. We give you thanks and praise. Amen.